Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Father Bocaire, President, and Bishop Paprocki from the Diocese of Springfield, I believe. Well, we always say Springfield in Illinois. <laughs> there's a Springfield, Massachusetts, and Springfield, Cape Girardeau, in Missouri. So papers sometimes get sent to the wrong Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. And we're going to be talking about leadership and how we can be leaders, basically, in moving the pro-life movement forward in this post-Roe era. So, yeah, I'll let you, I guess... Like based on your experience, Bishop, what are some of the key problems with our culture and how can we help combat that? Well, I think uh, one of the uh, key um, challenges we're facing in our culture is something that I think was articulated very well by Monsignor um, James Shea in uh, his, his book, From Christendom to uh, Apostolic uh, Mission. And what he describes there is uh, basically that you know we, we move from Christendom is where uh, the, the Christian faith and the Judeo-Christian way of thinking kind of uh, imbues society and our culture. And uh, it's not necessarily even uh, going back to um, you know the Middle Ages, medieval times, and when you think of Christendom then. But I'd say even in my lifetime, I've seen that, you know, where um, when I was growing up in the 1950s and early 1960s, there was still a sense that we were, had a Judeo-Christian culture. Uh, they were still praying in public schools, for example, uh, and that that came to an end with the Supreme Court decision in 1962. But uh, and since then, we've seen more and more, not just secular, but I think at this point even hostility uh, to to religion. So uh, that brings up this, the second part of Monsignor Shea's book is uh, apostolic uh, mission. Is that you know really going back to the time of the apostles uh, that they were very conscious of being surrounded by a pagan culture. Um, in some ways, maybe that made it cleaner for them because they knew the call of Christ and the Christian way of living, and they knew that they were surrounded by a culture that had its own religion, you know, the pagan gods, the Roman gods they were expected to pray to, and, and many Christians died as martyrs because they refused to, to pray to the pagan gods. Uh, so it was very clear in that sense, black and white, uh, in some ways, it's even more challenging in our time because uh, we still have vestiges of this Christendom uh, culture, and so um, and and people kind of assume, for example, you know, we have the First Amendment of the United States Constitution that uh, protects the free exercise of religion, but uh, that's not automatic. Sometimes we have to go all the way to the Supreme Court to defend that right, and then and even then, sometimes. Uh, you know, the lower courts don't necessarily always go along with that. So I, th I think that's part of the reality is to, to, to recognize that we're in apostolic times, like, almost like those first Christians, but in some ways even more challenging. Yeah, you know, you know I had the joy of uh, visiting with, uh, uh, being present last night for your presentation here uh, for Chelsea Academy, and you made uh, mention in, of Joe Shiler, and it's an example. Mm -hmm. Joe was a very dear friend of, of Father Marks, our founder, and they worked very closely with each other. And uh, I mean, Joe uh, was brought before the Supreme Court three times, three times and yeah. which really does reflect the battle that's in front of us, that uh, to uphold the good and the true and the beauty, we, beautiful, we, we just have to be willing to fight the good fight. And, you know, last night someone even asked you that question about, about the good fight, you know, to mm -hmm. run that race, and you gave a beautiful explanation and, uh, and response. And, and I think that today that, you know, uh, what I like about uh, Monsignor Shea's book is that it, it really does touch on a mindset, a framework that, that I, that as a pro-life leader, as a, a fellow Christian, a disciple, of how do I engage the world in front of me? 
This is the time that our Lord has allowed me to uh, to have life, and and He wants me to contribute, you know, to the advancement of the gospel. And to do so means I have to know what I'm faced with. What's mm-hmm. the narrative? What's the mindset? And I would say, Bishop, that uh, some of the challenges that I see not only here in the United States, but I see on a global front is really the 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 affront to marriage, the affront to the to the dignity of marriage and the beauty of family life and. So from your experience and what you're seeing in your diocese, and obviously as a, as a bishop within the conference of bishops and conversations and listening to your brother bishops, um, what are some of the ways in which the bishops themselves are trying to address that that, that could also help HLI and, and her global mission? Because just as a little side, oftentimes I bring with me materials from the conference of bishops mm-hmm. to share with bishops in other parts of the world because... They may not have those resources, and I do tell you that they find them very helpful, uh, especially like the, the directors on uh, for Catholic health care and uh, various other documents. So just I think it's what's good is for our audience to hear how not only as a bishop but a bishop within the body uh, of, of Christ, you know, in a universal, how do we approach these things these, these and advance the truths of the church? Well, one of the key phrases from the Second Vatican Council, especially the uh, the uh, Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, was on reading the signs of the times. You know, so I think we, first, that's where we start. So, I mean, the signs of our times we've known since 1973, at least uh, with, with Roe versus Wade, the challenge of abortion, and uh, addressing that. And um, I think we've been uh, very dedicated to that and very successful in some ways, you know, with the uh, Dobbs decision last year overturning Roe versus Wade, we can count that as a success. So that's an area where we, we can see um, identifying the problem, that confronting our culture with abortion, being proactive and, and being very strong in pursuing that. I think we're seeing that another sign of the times is the whole situation of marriage and our culture's uh, devaluing of marriage. Uh, some people, not even on their radar screen, that they would get married or doesn't mean they, they don't want to have children. Some are just cohabiting, you know, and the idea of why should why bother getting married? Uh, and some are outright hostile to that. And my The question and answer last night in, in our uh, after my uh, Chelsea lecture, uh, I gave the example of uh, a barber, a young barber that I visited when I was um, up uh, in Chicago for a few days. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't know uh, who I was. I was uh, not, I was, uh, I'd come from a workout and so asked me what I did, and I said I was a priest and uh, and a bishop, and and so he he said, "Oh, you priests and bishops, you can't get married, can you?" And so we got in this conversation about marriage, and um, and he said he didn't ever want to get married, and um, explained a little bit why his parents were divorced, and he said that a lot of his customers that uh, he gives haircuts to, you know, you have conversation with them. He's talking about how. Uh, for them, uh, many of them talked about how they cheat on their spouses, right. you know, and he said, I don't want any part of that. Well, he's got a very negative impression of marriage. Right. And so, yeah, if that's what you think marriage is, I can understand why you don't want to do that. Uh, but then I even said, well, what about children? Don't you want to have children uh, and have a family? He said, no, I've got a couple of dogs, <laughs> you know, and dogs are much easier, much less hassle than children. But, uh, that's really sad, you know, if you got people thinking uh, getting married and having a family is is too much work. Well, it is work, you know, and I think to, to recognize it as, as that, um, you know, we, we talk about you know, vocations to the priesthood and religious life, and I think uh, people there recognize, you know, the, the challenges and the sacrifices. I mean, you get, you get um, uh, you become a priest or a religious and you, you sacrifice having 
a spouse and a family. Um, but, you know, it's not that easy. Just say, well, you know, you get married, you don't have any sacrifices. You have lots of sacrifices. My, my father was in the seminary. Mm-hmm. He went uh, to the high school seminary in Chicago and then one year to Mundelein and discerned that he was not being called to be a priest. That didn't mean he was going to have an easier life. He went on to get married and have nine children. <laughs> uh, I'm the third of, the, of nine children. And uh, so very dedicated to his family. But it's a lot of work, I mean, to, um, to raise a family like that. And so I think in terms of what I've been trying to do with this, uh, recognizing uh, that reality is one of the signs of our times. I appointed a young priest last year to be my promoter of vocations. Uh, he's also my master of ceremony, so he travels with me. And, and that's intentional. So when we're together, we go and we talk about vocations. But when I, I gave him that assignment, I expanded it. Traditionally, a vocation director or promoter of vocations works on vocations, promoting vocations to priesthood and the religious right. life. And um, he has his theology degree from the Pontifical um, um, Academy for Life in Rome, the St. John Paul II right. uh, Institute for Marriage and Family Life in Rome. And uh, so uh, I added to that portfolio, not just promoting vocations of the priesthood and religious life, but also promoting the sacrament of matrimony. Well, with that, was so, was so beautiful. So Colleen, myself, we did a podcast yesterday talking about like the demographic winter issues and many of the countries that are struggling with low birth rates mm-hmm. and the consequences. But one of the things that you brought up that makes me think of our podcast yesterday, Colleen, was this, what we call the spiral, death spiral. And last night in your present in your lecture, your presentation, you mentioned among many uh, aspects of leadership. But the first was, you know, in the sense of modeling, mm-hmm. and then inspiring others to follow. And I, it's making me think of that because I was very fortunate to be raised in a in a very strong Catholic family environment. My dad is one of eighteen children. Wow. My mother is uh, one of eleven children. And you know, my dad's dad was one of thirteen. They had large families. And they practiced their faith, and we were very fortunate. It was modeled to us, mm-hmm. and in a way, it inspired us, you know, to look at married life, to look at family life, and to consider a priestly vocation, a religious vocation. There are two of us in my family that are priests. Uh, one uh, is a Benedictine uh, priest, uh, rector of actually of a seminary mm-hmm. um, in Louisiana, and so we were fortunate to have the modeling. And, but not only the modeling of, of that, but it inspired us. I mean, I look back at our grandparents, and that's what Colleen and I were talking about, that the Prime Minister of, of Japan recently uh, came out and expressed great concern because of a demographic winter that's upon them, and that by the year 2060, they will have lost 41 million people to the current population. And so obviously they're interjecting financial ways and mm-hmm. looking at uh, policies, but I added in my column, and what you're talking about, and, and that is there's a spiritual aspect here that's not being considered by those in leadership, and that is we've lost models of what marriage is. So many don't have that, like the right. barber you talked about. Their experience is so negative, and mine is the complete opposite. Yes. It, just, it had its struggles, but it was beautiful witness, and it was, it was something that, that inspired us to want to be like that, to be open and uh, one of my uh, cousins, uh, what they call him Papa Smurf, uh, mm-hmm. because he has four, he and his wife welcomed fourteen children. Wow! So, it, the, the, but his mom and dad welcomed fourteen children. So there was just this model model of love, of of self sacrifice, of care, and I think that's probably some of the looking at the signs of the times for for myself and for HLI and our global work uh, in service of the church and the gospel. It's one of the bigger challenges today. And sadly, what I'm seeing, Bishop, is also 
this unfortunate mindset intruding upon Africa, the developing world, uh, definitely parts of Asia in the developing part, and sadly in Latin America, which has such a strong Catholic presence, but it's we're losing ground. And uh, it, not that we ever lose hope, we never lose hope, right. but it's, it's, it's concerning for me. And, and, I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm always li- trying to listen to ways that have been very fruitful. Uh, and that's why uh, uh, listening to you and expressing one way is to promote vocations, but not just religious vocations and priestly vocations, but the vocation of marriage. Yes, so I'm modeling the way. That's one of the principles that I spoke about in my Chelsea uh, lecture, which uh, was focused on conscience and leadership in the lives of Saints Thomas More and John Fisher. And uh, conscience, we see in the, the strength of their conviction to, to stand up for what was right, um, uh, but also the, in terms of leadership, uh, to, to model the way. A couple of the principles of leadership I talked about, heroic courage and modeling the way. Well, you have to have courage, heroic courage, to stand up for your convictions, uh, but then to model the way. And I also I spoke about, uh, in terms of leadership, one of the things that's fascinated me is the relationship between leaders and followers. You know, uh, to be a leader presumes that you have followers. And I, I've wondered, well, how does that dynamic work? You know, you don't necessarily automatically have followers. Sometimes you get elected to a position and then you're, you're put in a position where everybody looks to you, you're now the leader. Uh, or being appointed a bishop, the pope right. appoints you a bishop, you're the leader of the diocese. But in other cases, it's a little more informal. You know, uh, how do you become a leader amongst your peers? I mean, that and that kind of happens naturally. Somebody somebody graduates, gra- gravitates to a leadership position. And I talked about uh, sometimes that requires this relationship between uh, heroic virtue and, and uh, modeling the way. Sometimes it means taking a risk of being an outlier. So what if you what if you stake out a position and you, you say, all right, this is where we're going, and nobody follows you, or you become an outlier? Does that, uh, but that's a risk you take. I think that's one of the risks that leaders take. You have to take. You can't just kind of, um, well, there, there was that expression following from behind, which right. is not very uh, effective leadership. It's kind of like, you know, seeing which way the wind is blowing, and then oh, if everybody's going that way, I'll run in front and I'll try to lead them. Which is well, what our culture is doing, really. yeah, yeah, very much. Just uh, seeing going with the flow, uh, and uh, by in that regard, I, I quoted um, uh, G.K. Chesterton his his great quote that uh, a dead fish can just goes downstream, but you, uh, only a, only a live fish can swim against the the stream. So you know we have to be alive with that. But you know, in terms of um, modeling the way. Um, and 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 staking out a vision, so John Saint John Fisher did that uh, in terms of uh, of all the bishops in England at the time. He was the only bishop that got up and refused to assent to uh, King Henry VIII's demands uh, that he be that they recognize his uh, divorce and his remarriage, and then recognize him as the head of the Church of England. And um, and he he got up and he. He very strongly said, "No, I will not consent to this." Uh, it was as a matter of conscience. Well, that was a heroic thing to do. Unfortunately, his fellow bishops did not follow him, so he became an outlier. Um, but was it ineffective? No, I'd I'd say it was not ineffective because many he, that gave the witness to many other Catholics in England. Then after that, you know, when the church basically was underground, literally, in some cases, where you can only say masses, you know, the priest had to be kind of hidden in some clandestine place and have a mass there. But that gave hope uh, to people, that example of, of those saints, Thomas More and John Fisher, who died 
uh, rather than abandon their Catholic faith. And, and I'm sure that gave inspiration uh, people who eventually followed. So we, we keep that in mind, too, with leadership, that people may not follow right away, um, maybe even not even when we're alive, but right. sometimes our lives can be an inspiration for others. It makes me think of Paul Minky and his companions. Mm-hmm. I, I shared with our, our staff here during Mass, and I read a, the quote, one of his final phrases and words was, and, and I'll paraphrase, is that, you know, may his example, his blood rain, you know, upon others. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, and as we know, the uh, Tertullian with the blood of the martyrs, you know, the church grows. And I think it's it's so true. We may never see the fruit. And, and this is something for us and our mission, um, part of the mission of the church and proclamation of the gospel of life is we may never see the fruit of our work. We may not see uh, the... The, the fruit of our labor until uh, another generation picks it up. And I, and I, I share this so often with Colleen, and you know, uh, I'm very blessed. I have a, a lot of younger uh, people coming into the mission work, and it's mm-hmm. so beautiful, it's exciting, it's encouraging, uh, and it's uplifting to the spirit to see others wanting to take that baton and now pass it on and move it forward. And, but I said, you know, we owe a tremendous gratitude to those outliers. Mm-hmm. You know, Nellie Gray with the March for Life. Right. You know, you mentioned, I mentioned Joe Scheidler, you know, uh, <laughs> racketeering charges three times before the Supreme Court, you know, fought the great fight. You know, our founder, Father Marks, you look at Dr. Wilkie, you look at, uh, you know, uh, Judy Brown. There's so many we could name, and those are just but a few. But because they were willing to do what be a, a living fish, mm-hmm. to go against the tide, that people like Colleen and myself and others have been able to pick up from there. And then carry it forward, and hopefully our task is to uh, is to in, inspire others to follow and to encourage. And I, I really I appreciate it, you know, uh, how you approach that leadership, and you know, um, and so and, and with that, if I if I may just kind of uh, push us in a, another direction that still affects the family, uh, in our in a way of our promoting the culture of life. What, uh, one of the subjects that it's always a touchy one in our culture today, which does impact our understanding of married life is the issue of contraception yes you know and so and then on the other end is the issue of euthanasia and what i see today in our effort to remove a violence from our culture in abortion but very few willing to go one step back and connect the dot and and in realization that with without addressing the issue of contraception and its mentality which then leads us into that abortion board of mentality but Father Marx used to also connect the dot, and he shared that with John Paul II, that if we embrace this mentality, then at the end of life, we will see it unmask itself as well with euthanasia, assisted suicide. And so uh, in the sense of what you're seeing in, in, uh, as bishop you know, in a diocese and uh, working with the body of bishops, how are, are these issues, you know, uh, in a sense, being addressed? I know the end of life is a, is a big mm-hmm. issue right now in our culture. We're seeing it when now 10 states have legalized uh, some form of euthanasia or assisted suicide. So we're now realizing this is becoming more and more uh, a threat mm-hmm. across our nation. But I, I, the first one, I hate to kind of toss a, a question at you, but I just I think it's, uh, it's one that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, well, I, I, I know they are connected. I, I know legally they're connected because... Um, you know, the, the uh, Roe versus Wade decision of 1973 had a precedent, uh, not on, directly on abortion. It was the contraception case, Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. 
And that is the, is the case where the U.S. Supreme Court started talking about the right to privacy. And it was that language that Justice Blackmun then picked up on in Roe versus Wade, this right to privacy. Um, so there is a connection, right, legally between the, these two cases on a contraception and abortion. But I think in terms of other issues, like you mentioned, euthanasia, I think there is a thread running through all this morally. Um, I served as chancellor starting initially under Cardinal Joseph Bernadine mm. in Chicago, and then when he died, I continued under Cardinal George, both very inspirational in their own way. And Cardinal Bernadine is the one that is often identified with the consistent ethic of life, mm. which I believe is misunderstood, and sometimes I think even intentionally um, um, misapplied by people. They, they want to take the consistent ethic of life as saying, well, you shouldn't be that concerned about uh, abortion. There's all these other issues, you know, immigration and poverty. And, and so let's downplay abortion. And, and Cardinal Bernadine, when he was still alive, he he criticized that right. interpretation of the consistent right. ethic. Yeah. There's a very strong interview <clears throat> that he gave in the National Catholic Register that he said, there are those on the left, if I may use that phrase, that want to use the consistent ethic of life to downplay abortion. Right. He said, I deplore that. It was very strong. So I, you know, and I worked with Cardinal Bernadine. So when I hear people quoting Bernadine, Cardinal Bernadine, and saying, well, the consistent ethic of life means we don't have to be so concerned about abortion, I said, no, no, I knew Cardinal Bernadine. I worked with him. That was not the consistent ethic of life. The consistent ethic is, yes, we hold the value of life from the moment of conception. But then that does carry through. Yes, that's why we have Catholic charities, and that's why we have Catholic schools, you know, to, to educate the young. That's why we have nursing homes. That's why we, we take care of the sick and, that, sick, and that's why we're opposed to euthanasia, because there is a thread that runs exactly, through all of that. Exactly. It's, and it is the challenge, is, is, is uh, the, the understanding of what solidarity means. And our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has spent a tremendous amount of effort trying to keep that language in front of people you know, this concern for our neighbor, this love of our neighbor, the Good Samaritan. And, and, uh, and I will say that in my, in my mission travels, it's one of the primary presentations I start with is, uh, is to really use that consistent ethic, and to sh that life ethic, and really show that life is about from its very beginning, at the moment of fertilization, to its natural end and everything in between that we are meant to serve and to love and defend, and, and as John Paul would say, that this, mm -hmm. this is that beautiful opportunity to really recognize my contribution. And I love what the bishops did with walking with moms. And it's something that uh, I know they had been working on for a while, and we've had pregnancy care centers, HLIs, engaged in this all over the world, is the, the, the need to walk with someone, not just in that one moment, but throughout the moment, and whatever moment will come down, there's, there's a wonderful program I know in Mexico called Weaving for Life. Mm. And it's always impressed me. I, I was introduced to it 12 years ago, and I've never forgotten the young couple because the young couple asked themselves, what are we doing to advance the culture of life? I mean, they were married, open to life themselves. They were trying to model it to other friends, but they kept seeing so many cases of, of, of women thinking that this was the only option before them. And, and very few things available. So they created weaving, sewing. They would teach them a trade. And not just the women, they would help the husbands or the boyfriends in certain cases to find work, to find employment, to, to go back to school, to get a degree. It was a way of saying we need to be here for the immediate situation, the need, but there's an, a greater need. And this is something that I've been trying to, uh, to 
follow in, around the world, starting with helping people to become aware, as what John Paul talked about with regard to euthanasia, you know, instead of serving the life in front of us and to love that life, we kill that life instead, mm-hmm. which removes me from the equation in being, quote, responsible or feel, uh, feeling like I don't, I, I'm, I'm free now. No, the, it's the opposite. And back to modeling and family, you know, I remember as a young boy, our grandparents uh, were in our homes, our aunts, our uncles, many of them died in our houses. And, and modern uh, healthcare that we see today was not available then. So, uh, so access to hospital healthcare was not as, mm-hmm. as common as we are experiencing today. But they were loved, they were cared, they were nurtured, they were given everything we could give them. And then, and then spiritually, the priests would come into our homes. And that's where, you know, uh, as uh, late Monsignor uh, Fossier, they were twin brothers, both priests. And, uh, and I won't tell you the exact quote because this is being recorded and we're going to play it. But I would, he would always uh, tell my parents, he's always in my legs, always <laughs> in my legs. And, but it was that relationship. Father was in our home. Father was sitting at our table. It was, it was the whole beauty of family life, the sacraments, the church, the spiritual, all in these moments of very difficult situations. There was nothing more we could do for my grandmother. There was nothing more physically we could do for my aunt or uncles, but we could love them. And we all were there when they died. You know? And so that is where I'm solidarity in, in the sense of being with a company and, uh, and so I've been doing this more, more in my initial presentations, trying to get people, that's not the narrative in our world, I guess is ultimately what I'm saying. It's not, it's not what, in the, especially in the West, this individualism, mm-hmm. this, this independence, uh, this autonomy, um, it really is a, a challenge. Uh, I would say, uh, if I may ask, if with some of this we're talking about, as you're looking forward, as you're looking ahead, what do you think are going to be some of the main challenges, let's say, in the next decade that you would think we're going to face here in the States, but also from your perspective globally? Well, I think, first of all, in terms of, um, of the abortion issue, I think one of the beautiful things that I've been seeing uh, in the pro-life movement is this awareness of trying to, to help women uh, who basically feel trapped. You know, And I think that's an important uh, uh, realization that you know, we, women who are considering having an abortion, they're not, they're not evil. And they're not necessarily thinking, gee, I'm going to go out and kill my baby. No, they, they feel trapped because they may feel they don't, they don't have the income. They don't have the job. The, the father has abandoned them. Exactly. I don't, I don't have the wherewithal to raise this child. What can I do? And so they feel the only option they have is to abort their baby, which is sad. But so to approach someone like that, is not to, uh, to attack them, you know, in terms of, well, uh, yes, what they're doing is wrong, but the, the better thing to do is, is try to help that woman to have her baby and give her the support. So, you know, the women's centers, the pregnancy uh, care centers uh, to, to provide, you know, the, the Catholic charities uh, services that are being provided to, to try to give that woman the message that, uh, no, you do have options and you're not alone. And there is a way for you to have your baby. And, and in, if, in the end, if you can't raise that child yourself, there's adoption. And there are plenty of, uh, of couples that are just waiting to adopt your child. So I think, um, I think that's a, a good uh, development. I think in terms of the challenges, uh, unfortunately, I think uh, since the Dobbs decision uh, last year, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, I think we've, we've seen the pro-abortion people become even more strident. 
Um, and um, especially in a state like where I'm from, Illinois, which is a very pro-abortion state, and uh, the, the governor there is, is boasting of about wanting to make Illinois the most pro-abortion state in the, in the union. And so we're facing that, and but that also means I've also seen uh, in the media and some uh, even some politicians criticizing our our women's centers or our pregnancy help centers. They're calling them anti-abortion centers. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the farthest thing from what those centers are trying to do. As I said, we're trying to positively help women and to you know characterize it as an anti-abortion center and even possibly some legal efforts to try to shut them down. Right. You know, so here we are trying to do a good thing to to help women I mean, in terms of really doing a service for women. And I think that's a real threat that we have to be aware of, that there are those that not only want to prevent sidewalk counseling and praying in front of abortion clinics, which which is protected by law to pray peacefully, uh, but even to shut down our, 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 our pregnancy help centers and our women's centers. So we have to be aware of that. Exactly. You know, the, you know, maybe just, you know, uh, one of the things recently I was uh, fortunate to, uh, to, uh, to study for a master's in bioethics and uh, my thesis, you know, for that, for the degree was on modeled off of two documents by the U S Catholic mm-hmm. conference of mm-hmm. the bishops. One was, uh, uh, the uh, beautiful document on marriage and the sense of joy, uh, the joy of living, the joy of love, this beautiful framework. And then the other was actually walking with moms. And what mm-hmm. I what I was looking at it in was looking at how can we globally, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to do through HLI, is called life centers. Now the name still can be played with a lot, yeah. but it's not about pregnancy care alone. It mm-hmm. really is the total package, which has always been our Catholic church is being there with. And so, and, I, and, and part of it was, is how do we create these centers in very strategic places in each diocese, throughout a diocese, especially in, in, in the developing world where they're the most assaulted by the Western ideologies, but centers where families can go, single people can go, where they can find support. They're in a difficult situation. There's a physical need. Uh, they're having marital questions. Their couple may be struggling with infertility. Uh, there may be a question in healthcare about, you know, do I need to take chemo? Do I not do chemo? Do uh, the doctor wants to do A? Should I do A? A place where families and people can come and know that there are sound, there's sound counsel. They know that they can trust, and they know that it's not just someone's going to say you have to do A, you can't do B, but I'm here with you. And I, I, that to me is a big challenge. And I often uh, ponder, and it's playing Monday night quarterback, using a phrase, and that is, is if our centers are these kinds of centers, we had had these in anticipate 60, 70 years ago, we might not have seen such an aggression with the abortion uh, movement as much as we did. That's me just looking at saying, is looking at these, these needs that were there and many people were trying to meet those even before Roe v. Wade, but there were very few of them out there. And I just often wonder if uh, many of these things had been more present. I, that's what's kind of making me think in the developing world to be proactive, to create these places so that people don't ever have to believe that when Planned Parenthood comes in or Marie Stopes comes in or any of these other groups come in saying, well, the answer to your poverty is, the right. answer to your dilemma is, they were already no, no. I went to Bishop Paparaki's uh, life center over there, and I already know my answer. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, be gone with you. Uh, but that's not where they are. 
they they don't know where to turn and a lot of times they come in sowing the contraceptive issue and mentality which then leads to the introduction of abortion then leads to other uh you know uh so many other horrible things in family life so uh i do and that's why I, I love listening and it's one of the things that i'm so grateful today that you took time to be with us because uh, this is one thing i do internationally is meeting with the local bishops meeting with the local leaders understanding what they're seeing, what their perspectives are, learning from what has worked for them, what has been beneficial to them, and then uh, kind of like a, a, a carrier pigeon, I take all that wonderful knowledge and I go to another part of the world and share it. And so in a way, I'm, I am living those, in a way, those, those uh, leadership uh, examples you gave, modeling, inspiring, uh, challenging the process, you know, and then that whole in, in inspiration and going forward. So uh, I would say that's something that we need to continue to do. Uh, so I'm very grateful, you know, uh, Bishop, you know, for uh, for all that you do. I mean, I know our audience will be familiar with you and familiar with not only your name and your diocese, but they're going to be familiar with many times have you, how you you have stepped up uh, to that 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 stage, if you will, to address some of these key issues and going against the grain. You've been a living fish, you know, <laughs> going against the tide. And 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 I can say for for many people, and I hear this. Uh, and from so many of our uh, uh, people we collaborate with, is we look to our shepherds, we look to our leaders to help and to be there. And you said last night something very beautiful with all that. And uh, and I think uh, it was a colonel uh, that was there last night, yes. was a retired colonel. And uh, and I won't give you the whole thing to our audience and Colleen, but he was saying that you know when he was in, uh, a young, it sounded like he was a young lieutenant or a captain at the time, but he was he was an officer. And his sergeant said, okay, you know, lieutenant, captain, whatever you were at the time, this is what I need from you. What's the mission? And it has to be clear. Second, resources. And I'm going to stop right there. So, and he mentioned a shovel. And I kept thinking, boy, in today's modern age, it wouldn't be a shovel to be asking <laughs> yeah. for. But the point being is the, the leader, tell me my mission. Tell me what I need to do. How can I help you? And then give me the resources. So, I found that very encouraging last night, Bishop, to hear that, because it helps me here as a leader to say, okay, what's the mission? What are the tools necessary? What resources do I need to supply? And then give me the the, the people to do it. So so thank you for, for all that you're doing. And, uh, and and definitely we'll continue to keep you in prayer as well. Uh, and, and please pray for us. Pray for us. And so any, any last words, uh, you know, uh, Bishop, for our audience? Uh, well, yes. So thank you for having me on, on your, your program here. But I would, uh, the, my, I guess, words of encouragement would be to never underestimate um, the, the power that, of the witness you give, even if you're one person. You know, I talked about the power of St. Uh, John Fisher and, and, and my, uh, my talk. He was just one bishop. And, uh, you know, the tendency... Uh, or the temptation is for us, I'm just one person, what difference would that make? But it has a powerful difference. I, um, uh, I'm i a marathon runner, and, and I run with a group called the Life Runners. It's a pro-life running group uh, that was founded, and is, uh, the president of it is uh, is another colonel. He's a, it was a retired Air Force colonel, Dr. Patrick Castle. And um, so what we do is, like, when we're at a marathon, some of us are running wearing a blue and white T-shirt that says on the back in big letters, Remember the Unborn. And then we also have members of, of the group that are standing there near the finish line with a big 
banner, mm-hmm. Remember the Unborn. And it's interesting, the reactions we get. Sometimes the race officials want to move us out. You can't stand here. It's like, no, this is public property. We can stand here with our sign. You know, so we get interesting challenges like that. But part of that, when we go somewhere to run a marathon, it's a whole weekend. So we're at the expo where you pick up your, your, your race number and your packet and all that. But again, we have our big sign up there, Remember the Unborn. Um, but then part of that is usually, um, well, that would be like on Saturday morning. Let's say it's Sunday marathon. Saturday morning we'll do that. Saturday uh, evening we'll have um, a mass and then our pasta dinner, our carbo loading <laughs> before the marathon the next day. But in between there, Saturday afternoon, what we often do is go pray in front of an abortion clinic. Mm. And I remember one time we went on a Saturday afternoon and uh, at Planned Parenthood office, and it was actually closed. So we're kneeling there praying in in front of the Planned Parenthood, and, and you might people might be wondering, well, what good did that do? It was closed. Well, as it turned out, there was a security guard inside, watching us, kneeling out there praying, and uh, watching the whole time. And of course, we prayed peacefully, so you know we didn't even know he was watching us. That Monday morning, he called the, uh, the the Life Runner's office and he said, "I I saw you out there praying on Saturday. I just want to let you know that I quit my job today." He said, "I can't work for this company for for this Planned Parenthood anymore if they're doing abortions." Wow. So just our witness of praying there and not even knowing the security guide well, guard guard was inside, and then the influence that we had made made like that. So you you never know. Uh, people are sometimes looking, seeing what you're doing, and and not even aware of it. So I'd say, uh, you know, I was born and raised in Chicago in the big city, but now I'm in central Illinois. We have acres and acres of, of cornfields. <laughs> right. And so the uh, image I like to use now is, you know, planting a seed. Right. You know, we were saying earlier, sometimes one person, and St. Paul uses this image also in his his letters, you know, one person plants, another person waters, and another uh, person reaps the harvest. Well, we may uh, only be planting seeds, and we may not even be around when the harvest is is, is, is reaped. Um, but uh, planting the seeds is very important. Very so uh, even if that's all we do, it's important to be planting those seeds. Well, thank you, Bishop, very much. And in, in a way of closing, Colleen, if you don't mind, Bishop, with that said, last night uh, in your lecture, you also spoke about the bishop's mitre. And oh. I think I, 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 there's a beautiful image within that explanation about the two panels, the flaps, and we'll right. see the two tails, if you will, that people might see off the bishop's mitre. I think that might be a good way to, to maybe end, in, and that would be is when St. Paul says to run the race, and obviously to run it to win, to, to, to reach the goal. Would you mind ending with that story, kind of explaining that? Because I, it, it really does express a very powerful image that we're meant to, right. <laughs> to run. You know, to, to bring forth, would, would that be okay? Oh, that'd be fine. Uh, so yeah, the, so the bishop's mitre is that big pointed hat and the, the, the hat itself uh, in that shape symbolizes the tongues of fire that came down upon the apostles at Pentecost and a bishop is a successor of the apostles. But it, uh, at the back of the mitre, it has these two little flaps there and people, sometimes the children will ask me, what are those little flaps on the back? <laughs> and I'll say, well, those are actually symbols of being a runner. You know, like in the, the ancient Olympics, uh, which started in, in ancient Greece, you know, you know, the athletes, and even today, sometimes uh, instead of a headband, you just take a bandana and tie it around your head, and then you've got these little strings or flaps flying in the background. Well, that's the image of St. Paul often used of when you are, you use that image of our Christian journey in life is like running a race. Right. And so um, 
I gave, I told a little story about how I was training once in, in Dallas and running along the banks of the Trinity River. And on, uh, it was sunny, but the day before it had rained. So there's mud along there and this mud was just kicking up on my shoes. And I went across the bridge to the other side of the river running back and that side was dry. So I was able to stop. I peeled the mud off my shoes <laughs> and I ran the rest of the way. Well, I got home that evening. That evening, evening prayer was from uh, the letter to the Hebrews, which starts out, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, persevere in running the race with your eyes focused on the finish line, life on high with Jesus Christ. Well, that's our spiritual life. And I thought, what a great metaphor. You know, rid yourself of the burden that clings to you, which, of course, is the burden of sin. You know, we go to the sacrament of reconciliation. We are cleansed of our sins. And then we can run that race towards the finish line, which is life on high with, with Jesus Christ. Flaps flying <laughs> the flaps in the wind. Exactly. Back exactly. It's yep. a beautiful image. Well, well, thank you very much. And uh, it, it really is, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. So I, th- I appreciate you taking time to be with Colleen and myself today. And, and, uh, and rest assured, be assured of our prayers, our thoughts for you. And uh, you're welcome anytime. And, you know, we'd love to have you back and maybe we can talk about some other uh, wonderful subjects uh, that are, we're dealing with in our advancement of the culture of life. But would you end, Bishop, by giving, uh, before we toss it back to Colleen, who's going right. to give us our kind of end, but would you give us a blessing, please? Sure. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask you to send your blessings upon all those who are involved with the work of Human Life International and all those throughout the world who uh, promote the value of life from conception to natural death and respect for life. Help us in our efforts and May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop, for joining us and for joining me and Father today and sitting down talking with us. To all of our listeners, please remember to like and subscribe and follow, whether you're listening on YouTube, Rumble, or any of our audio platforms, and keep on living the culture of life. Keep on being a model for others. God bless.